Hello guys, it's History Time on 101.9 FM. Your host, Alex, is back to teach more history. So today, I'll be talking about the Stock Derby. The Stock Derby was a really weird and confusing part of Canadian history. This part of Canadian history all started when Charles Vance Miller, who was a lawyer, died of heart attack on Halloween night 1926 in his office in downtown Toronto. You see, Mr. Miller was a wealthy man and had no close relative. It was when he died that he became very famous. Reports of unusual stipulations in his will first appeared in, in Toronto newspapers of early November, and people found out that he had designed a will to test the moral and, and beliefs of his contemporaries. One of the weird parts in his will was the ninth clause because it was never seen before. He wanted all of his remaining estates to be liquidated into cash and invented for over, invested for over nine years. On the tenth anniversary of his death, the balance was to be was to be given to the mother who has since his death given birth in Toronto, the greatest number of children, as shown by the registrations under the Vital Statistics Act. If it was a tie, the money was to be equally divided between the mothers. His view was largely met with confusion. confusion. It was called a freak document by the Blue newspaper, and his friends weighed in whether the whole thing was a practical joke. It would be just like Mr. Miller to get the whole province talking about such a document and at the same time leave, after, leave a later will which would appear after they had talked the matter of the other one out, said Charles Kemp, one of, one of Mr. Miller's close friends. The most enjoying controversy surrounded the night clause, the part that, pled, that pledged the money to the mother of the largest family, according to Hawking himself, a Queen's Council. Mr. Miller went to great lengths to make sure this portion of the will was perfectly structured in order to withstand court challenges. The case against the clause revolved around whether or not it was against public policy. Encouraging the birth of children without regard to their chances of life or welfare and encouraging what, what no decent breeder of dogs would do, in the words of the Globe newspaper. Others, including George Middleton, concluded Mr. Miller had meant to analyze the plight of mothers of large families who were often poor and victimized by lack of, con- of contraception. Child- Charlie's hope was, was that by turning the spotlight on unbridled breeding and making Toronto a laughing stock before the world, it could shame the government into legalizing birth control, wrote Colonel John Bruce, a friend of Milan. Despite the questions of the validity of the will and of the value of the price in the years that followed, women began to emerge as contenders for his money. In 1933, seven years into the race, court interpreter Grace Bagnato and Florence Brown led the race with seven kids. Three others, Ida Graziano, Emmanuel Darigo, and Clarence Kids, had six living children since, since 1926. During the, con- during the contest, Miller's distant cousins in the United States tried to came- claim the prize for themselves, having plus nine declared void on grounds of uncertainty and public policy. If they succeeded, the money would 
be divided up within the next of kin whether or not Miller had wanted that or not. In May 1930, a judge cheered that claim because they were not the nearest of kin. The nearest of kin was the half aunt who had lived in California and died about a year ago after Miller. The executor of the will of the half aunt Nancy Vance Miller likewise tried to have the close night declared a valid but was stopped by the executors of Miller's view who successfully petitions to have the U.S. citizen put up a steep security deposit for its court costs. The biggest early challenge to the legality of Miller's view came from the Ontario government. Attorney General William H. Price introduced a bill in the legislature that sought to claim Mr. Miller's money on behalf of the province in March 1932. Price of Bill 141 entitled an act respecting the estate of Charles Miller deceased would remove the mothers and the American descendants claims the money and we appoint the executors of, of the will as trustees of the money. For five years, any income from the money would be given to the University of Toronto to pay for scholarships and bursaries. After that, the entire sum was to be handed to the university, which would keep it forever and continue to use the income to benefit students. Unfortunately, for Price, the bill pro- provoked a furious public and political backlash. Now deep in the midst of the Depression, Charles Miller was no longer a big joke. Instead, the great stock derby had become the pie in this sky gym of every subsistence family in Canada, wrote Mark Hawking. Price was spammed with letters of up to 14,000 of them, according to Hawking, expressing outrage at the idea of the government dipping into people's pockets to claim the money for themselves. The Ontario government is taking money from children that need it, said Florence Brown, one of the women in the running to claim the money. She had lived at 64 Ubix Bridge Avenue in the junction. The father of our 27 children, Henry Brown, said the government is hungry for money, but we are not going to let them have it without a fight. Eventually, Price backed down. He reduced the bill a short time later, claiming that new relatives had come forward. Though several mothers were associated with the stock debut race for years, the leaderboards were frequently adjusted to account for new arrivals. Discouraged by public interest in the race, many women entered only in the last few years. In 1935, a year before the end, Lillian Kenny, a newcomer, was top of the leaderboards with, with 11 of her 15 children who were eligible for the prize. Lucy Timlek and Kathleen Nagel were tied for second with nine children. Gris Bagnato, who led the race in 1933, slipped into third place with Ilda Graziano, Emanuela Darigo, Mandel Harrison, and Flores Brown when her eighth child was stillborn. It's easy to picture these families risking their health and well-being for a chance at Mr. Miller's prize money, but a chance at the cash was, wasn't the primary motivator. Grace Bagnato was questioned and she pointed out that she already, she already had 13 children before the debut began. I had all my children but one before I had any intention of putting my name forward as a contender, said Annie Smith, another lead contender. Most of the women would have had large families regardless of any reward. That doesn't mean money wasn't a factor. Most of these women in the competition were desperately poor and lived in dire conditions while trying to provide for extremely large families. The major of the front runners relied almost entirely on government money.
the executors of Miller's bill made the final push for entrance in Toronto newspapers in the day leading up to the 14 to 4:30 p.m. October 31, 1936, the deadline. And several more newcomers came forward, including a mysterious woman identified as Mrs. A or Mrs. X. The final result was incredibly difficult to ascertain. So women claimed their births had to be officially registered. Others had kids outside of wedlock, sometimes with more than one partner. And the women couldn't be sure if the court would allow these children to count. One woman, Vera Meldrum, was confined to the township of York, which was then outside the city of Toronto, for the birth of one of her children, despite permanently living in Toronto. Time expired on Halloween 1936. Six women were, t- were tied for the f- for first place, with nine children born and registered during the previous decade. Lucien Timlek, Kathleen Nagel, Annie Smith, Isabel McLean, Lillian Kenny, and Paul May Clark, the publici- the publicity shy woman previously identified as Mrs. X. Kelly Clark, Kenny Clark, Timlek, and Nagel all claimed at least 10 births. But for many reasons, they couldn't prove all of their children met all, st- all the stipulations. So avoid disqualifications, all of them except Kenny agreed to officially enter Nigerian. With time expired, the legal challenges began. There were questions over the length of the competition was supposed to last, and whether unregistered stillborn or those born to married mothers counted in the contest. Some questioned the definition of Toronto, and whether or not the whole thing was against public policy that is against public morals and decency. The question of public policy was answered by Justice William Middleton, who had ruled on the Miller's case a decade earlier. Middleton decided that the ninth clause was not against public policy and advised that children meant only living legally registered babies born to married parents. The case of the of Mr. Miller will went eventually went to the Court of Appeal for Ontario and to the Supreme Court of Canada which agreed with Medicine's decisions on the definition of children at public policy. In 1938, four women received a cut of Mr. Miller's fortune, which amounted to half a million dollars thanks to the deceased shoot investments in the Detroit Windsor Auto Tunnel. Lucy Simlick, Kathleen Nagel, Annie Smith, and Isabel McQueen all got checks of $125,000, which is about $2 million in 2020. Two other mothers, Lillian Kenny and Paul A. Clark, got smaller amounts in out of court settlement after the stillborn illegitimate teammates or unregistered children were not counted in the totals. Miller's distant relative got nothing. With, mon- with the money, the working husbands of Anne Smith, Lucy Timlek, and Isabel McLean left their jobs. They all moved to more spacious homes, but there was a little in the way of comp- conspicuous spending, coded endorsements, or public appearance. This ended this part of Canadian history. To conclude, the stock debut was just a contest held by a lawyer who wanted to have, have some fun after he died. That's the end of Issue Time on 101.9 FM. Goodbye.